I'm Teresa Steger from the Principal PLN Podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out all the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagine Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and my special guest today is Ian Jukes, a Canadian author and educator who is widely considered one of the world's leading experts in the field of education. Ian is the founder and executive director of the InfoSavvy Group, an international consulting firm that specializes in education. Ian has been a classroom teacher, teaching at every grade level from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. He has served as a school leader at the local, regional, and national levels. He's a former university professor, an award-winning author, international consultant, and a sought-after keynote speaker. To date, he has worked with clients in more than 80 countries and has made more than 13,000 presentations. He's also the author or co-author of 18 books and nine educational series. Ian has created, organized, and populated a vast digital library that contains more than 18,000 educational resources and best practices. You can find a customized link for this episode in the show notes. It was truly an honor to spend some time with Ian Jukes, and I certainly hope you enjoy our conversation on this episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagine Schools podcast. I'm your host, Greg Goins. Have another exciting show for you in this episode as we bring in my very special guest, a global change agent in the field of education, Mr. Ian Jukes. Ian, how are you, sir? Another day older and deeper in debt. Nice to be here. Thanks, Greg. I know you've had a very busy um, summer, and now you're into a busy fall. I was just looking at your, your bio, and it's just amazing that you, you've given more than 13,000 presentations in 80 different countries. You, just, you must love airports and hotels. Well, you know, the fact that I've been invited to speak 13,000 times demonstrates that standards have really fallen in the last little while because people seem to think that I actually know what I'm talking about. But, yes, it's a very glamorous life. People say to me, oh, you know, you've been to Lebanon. Yes, you've been to Turkey. I go, right. I arrived at the airport at 1130 at night. My ride wasn't there. I got to the hotel at 3 o'clock in the morning. I had a 7 o'clock wake up, and I had to be back at the airport at 5 o'clock to head off. I... uh, I had an event recently in which I had a Monday in Sydney, Australia, a Wednesday, which was actually a Tuesday in um, Miami, and a Thursday in Athens, Greece. It was, uh, it was a very, very interesting time. <laughs> As someone who travels the globe, speaking about uh, education, uh, I guess the first place I want to start is as you kind of reflect on your travels going to 80 countries, obviously talking to, to people within the field of education, teachers, school leaders, um, 
how are those conversations different depending on what continent you're on? And do they have the same hopes and dreams that everyone has when we think about reinventing education for kids? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out of it as I normally do from a bit of a, an, an angle and say that one of the things we have to understand is uh, let's, let's talk about the American educational system, for example. Uh, and there's lots of criticism. There's lots of criticism that's justified. And we can talk about our focus on standards and the focus on high-stakes testing and things like that. But I have to tell you, from a global perspective, when I travel, we aren't doing that badly. Uh, there, there are issues, yes, uh, but uh, we, we tend to uh, overestimate the problems we have. What we're, what we're dealing with here in education here in the United States uh, is no greater a challenge than I'm seeing elsewhere. Am I seeing interesting things happening? Yes. Whether when I go to Scandinavia, when I go to New Zealand, when I go to Australia, there are, um, there are schools that are very interesting. There are school districts that are very interesting that are doing powerful, powerful things. But I see that very same type of thing happening as I travel throughout the United States. Uh, and uh, in terms of what's happening, I, I think the one thing we have to always keep in mind is that the grass always appears to be greener on the other side. And uh, although we hear of these wonderful things, and I get to visit schools that are ostensibly doing wonderful things, I have to tell you, um, a lot of times it's just smoke and it's not necessarily fire. Uh, in terms of reimagining education, uh, there are initiatives that are underway in Texas. There are initiatives underway in New York. There are issues that are uh, underway in lots of places, both in the urban settings and rural settings, where people aren't just talking about change. They're truly walking that change. And, you know, I think the one thing we can agree on uh, when we talk about uh, education, especially now, is is kids are different. And you talk a lot about <laughs> the always on generation. You've been talking a lot about brain research and quite frankly, Ian, I don't think we spent enough time talking about how kids have changed and yet we're still trying to teach them with that traditional model. Uh, it's deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berry used to say. Um, um, I wrote a book about uh, six years ago, Understanding the Digital Generation, which talked about neuroplasticity and talked about the fact that, uh, you know, biologically on the outside, kids pretty much look the same as we did growing up. Maybe their hair is a little bit different, their clothing is a little different. But it belies the fact that neurologically, that on the inside, they're they're neurologically different. They view information differently. They process information differently. They apply information differently. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing you've always done, but expecting or wanting or needing completely different results. So what we have is we have these kids who are different, but we continue to treat them the same way. And in doing so, what we're doing is we're failing them. And uh, without being prompted here, I'll go on to say that uh, – uh, I wrote a book called, about three years ago, called Reinventing Learning for the Always-On Generation. And I talked in that book about 10 aspects of digital learning, 10, 10 aspects of digital learners and how they look at the world. And I talked about the fact that beauty is really in the eyes of the beer holder, that they see the world very differently than we do. But I have to say that one of the big pieces that's become quite an alarm for me in the last little while you have to understand that contextually from the, the 80s on, I've been standing up in front of people and I've been waxing effluent about the incredible potential. And there really is incredible potential 
for use of technologies to transform learning and to transform learners. And I've stood up in front of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people a year and basically talked this to people. And what I'm beginning to see now is something, a very disturbing trend, and that is the impact that digital technologies are having on kids' ability to deep think, to be able to process information. And uh, without going into all the gory details, I'll give you a link at the end where you can go and pull some information down. Uh, just in one of, as one example, um, we traditionally read in what's called a Gutenberg pattern, sometimes called a, a Z pattern. And what our eyes do is they unconsciously go to a, a spot about approximately one-third of the page down and one-third of the page in from the left side. And then what we do is we tend to read information on a page in what's called a Gutenberg or a Z pattern. Or what we do is we go up to the left-hand corner, go across, we come across, come down a little bit, and we, we get what looks like a, a Z pattern. And what we discovered in the last about nine years is that kids don't read in a Z pattern. They read in what's called an F pattern. And what, what it means by that is their eye goes to that, that spot, approximately one-third of the page down and one-third of the page in from the left-hand side. And what their eye will do is they will go all the way across the first line. They'll go move down to the next line and go approximately three-quarters of the way across, go down to the next line, go about two-thirds of the way down across the, the, the page. And then what they'll do is they'll go down the, on the left-hand side of the pattern. And in fact, statistically, they'll only read about 28% of the words on any page. And so what you can literally do is you can literally draw a diagonal line between the upper right-hand corner of the page and the lower left-hand corner of the page. And unless you can find a way to compel them to go there, their eyes will never go below that line. Well, that's disturbing unto its own. Some absolutely brand new research has come out in the last four months that indicates that kids don't read in a Gutenberg pattern. They don't read in a Z pattern. They don't read in an F pattern. What they do is their eye tends to go approximately a third of the way across the first line and then go down the page in the form of an eye. And what they end up doing is end up only reading about 12% of the words on any page, which means that what's happened to them is uh, our, we do what's called horizontal reading. They do vertical reading and scanning has become the new norm for them. Going back to the definition of insanity, we're continuing to commit a suicide. We're continuing to assume that kids read the very same way that we do, and they don't. And so what's happening is they are being profoundly affected. It turns out, what the research seems to indicate is they have been profoundly, profoundly affected by their exposure to digital technologies, in particular to smartphones. And this has a really, really significant implication in terms of deep learning and comprehension and the ability to be able to focus and do problem solving and critical thinking and all of those things that we call the modern skills. Now, I'm, I'm on a rampage here talking about this, but I have to tell you, um, I read a lot. I get up every morning and do three to four hours of steady reading, and I'm starting to read some stuff here that is, I'm finding, extremely concerning. 
Uh, it doesn't mean that I, I'm suggesting that we should remove technology from the classroom, but boy, 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 we have to look very carefully at what it is we're doing in the classroom, and we have to look very, very carefully at trying to find a balance between digital and non-digital experiences for these kids. And, you know, we can call them digital natives, we can call them the I-generation, even screenagers, and we've heard that term thrown out there. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, these kids are, are digital learners, and they want and deserve a different school experience than that two, four, six classroom I've heard you talk about with the two covers of the clothes, the four walls, right. yeah. and, and the six-period day. So when you go out and you talk to folks about that, what do we have to do to kind of change the mindset to uh, – you know, they need to be active participants in learning. They can't just be consumers of information in a traditional model. We, we have two different groups. We have to talk to teachers and we have to talk to parents. And, and to teachers, one of the shocking things I talk about in the research that I did for Understanding the Digital Generation, the book a few years ago, what I discovered was that when kids walk into a teacher's classroom for the very first time, what most teachers don't realize is that they're on the clock. And they have, depending on the research, anywhere between 30 seconds and 12 minutes to demonstrate two th three things, to the, or two things to the kids. The first thing is that they respect the kids for who they are, and number two, that they're willing at least part of the time to be able to meet them halfway. The, the difficulty is, is that if they demonstrate in the first seconds, minutes, that they don't do one of those two things, the kids won't just passively sit there. They will actively subvert what goes on in the classroom. And so the old definition of insanity is doing the same thing you've always done and expecting or wanting or needing completely different results. We've got different kids, and if we continue to do what we've always done, we're going to continue to get what we've always got. And in doing so, we're going to fail our kids, and in failing our kids, we're going to fail this nation. We're going to fail the entire economy of this nation because we are going to do a fantastic job of preparing kids for a world that increasingly no longer exists. And I also know that you talk a lot about change, and that's something you write about, something you speak about. We think about this monumental shift or change, if you will, in the way schools function. Why is it so complicated? Why can't we seem to wrap our head around the idea that we have to do things differently? That is a, a great question, and it really comes down to this. Um, Tom Peters, the management guru, says uh, you can't leap a canyon in two bounds. You either leave the canyon on the first bound or you're going down, you're going to fail. And yet what we try to do in education is we try to make massive changes in a very short period of time and inevitably we fail. The real answer to change, the, 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 the challenges of change remind me of going in and deciding you're going to clean up your garage or clean up your basement. And you, and you walk in there and you're completely overwhelmed by the task at hand because there's all these piles of stuff there. And if, if, we, if we continue to focus on the magnitude of the change, it's going to completely overwhelm us and we're never going to get it done. And, and the real issue of change is not about making massive amounts of change in short periods of time. To, to coin a phrase from a movie called What About Bob that came out about 15 years ago, uh, we had this incredibly neurotic guy, Bill Murray. We had this eminent psychologist, Richard Dreyfuss. And, and Bill Murray was absolutely driving Richard Dreyfuss crazy with his neuroses. But 
Richard Dreyfus had just written this groundbreaking book that said, if you want to overcome the challenges, what you have to do is take baby steps. Tony Robbins calls this canny, constant, never-ending incrementalism. What we're talking about here is not about making massive, massive changes in short periods of time. What we're talking about teachers doing is taking and changing one activity in a classroom, taking three minutes out of a classroom and changing an activity. It's about changing one activity in a lesson, one lesson in a unit, take, just taking baby steps. And what you can do is, if you can compound that over a course of days, weeks, months, you can make massive changes. But if we are, are confronted by the, the magnitude of the tasks, when we, when we talk about the, the, the issues that we're dealing with, whether they happen to be socioeconomic, whether they happen to be cultural, whatever it is we're looking at, it can be absolutely overwhelming. So what we have to be able to do is we have to be able to break it down into bite-sized pieces and take them one at a time rather than trying to do them all at once. And so you, you made reference earlier to states that were doing some positive things, moving the needle and uh, moving the right direction. You know, you've been out there for a long time, 20 plus 20 years talking about change in education. You know, how do you feel things have changed during that 20 year period? And what are you most proud of as you've been out working with school districts? Well, uh, that's that's a really complicated question. You just about made my head explode there, Greg. Um, what am I seeing out there? What I'm seeing out there is I'm not seeing, for the most part, I'm not seeing states. I'm seeing countries. I'm seeing countries like Finland who are doing really interesting things. I see places like Singapore that are doing really interesting things. I see places like New Zealand where they're really trying to reimagine education. Uh, the, the, the places where I'm seeing ch real change happen are typically are schools or small regions within a, in a district. So uh, you had Tony on here last week, Tony Wagner on here last week, and we talked about High Tech High in San Diego and, and, and what they're trying to do there. Uh, you know, the, the whole thing is, is that if we expect that kids are just simply going to regurgitate back information, it just isn't going to happen. We can talk about the statistics about the amount of information that's retained. What you have to be able to do is you have to be able to create a model that's going to, and here's that word again, engage learners in the process and you can only do that by putting the hook in them and you don't put the hook in front of kids by standing up in front of them waxing effluent for long periods of time and doing full frontal lecturing what you do is you have to be able to what's called progressively withdraw you know my job as an educator when i walk into a classroom is not just to stand up at the front and show students how smart I am. My job is to help them discover how smart they can be for themselves. And what I have to be able to do is, this is where I have to take my baby steps and I have to progressively withdraw and shift the burden of responsibility from me, the teacher, where it traditionally is, to the learner, where it needs to be. Um, several years ago, I got asked to do a major keynote in front of 31,000 people in front of a, um, I won't mention the country at this particular time. But um, after the presentation was over, I was asked by the Minister of Education to come back and sit in the green room and have lunch with him. He's a very nice guy and we hit it off and we we're having a great conversation. And uh, about halfway through the conversation, he leaned over to me and he said, 
He says, you know, the kids of our nation are the top academic performers in the entire world, and they were at that particular time. He says, these kids consistently get the top scores in all the international exams. And then he leaned into me and whispered in my ear. He said, but they couldn't think their way out of a wet paper bag if their life depended upon it. And he says, here's the problem. He says, our nation has no natural resources, not even fresh water, okay? And he says, we can't just have people who simply regurgitate the old. We have to have people that reinvent the new. He says, the difficulty with our students is they're the best educated in the world. He says, but they're nothing but highly educated, useless people. I said, what? What are you talking about? He says, they have school skills. They know how to play the game called school. They can get themselves ready for the next topic, for the next term, for the next test, for the next level of education, but they are absolutely not prepared for the world that awaits them once they leave school. And that's the model we have to talk about. What we're doing is, and it's an overused phrase, we have to prepare kids for a world that no longer exists using technologies that haven't been invented to solve problems that we haven't even begun to think about yet. And the only way we're going to do that is by helping them to be able to discover their own pathway. We can't just simply ask them to regurgitate back information that 24 hours later, a significant portion of it is gone and gone forever. Yeah, and I think those are all wonderful points, and I, and I appreciate you taking the time to kind of walk us through that, uh, that process. And I know you're always writing and you're always doing research, and I, you're working on three book projects right now. Probably the one I'm most excited about, and we talked about this a little uh, before we came on, was uh, the book you have coming out in December, A Brief History of the Future of Education with the foreword by Steve Wozniak. Can you talk about those yes. three book projects? Uh, okay, well, um, the, the, the first one I mentioned somewhat is Reinventing Learning, a rewrite of Reinventing Learning for the Always-On Generation, uh, because things are moving so quickly here that the assumptions or suicides we have about learners that we had four or five years ago are profoundly changing. And so what we're doing is we're updating the information that was originally in the reinventing and before that in the book called understanding the digital generation. And uh, the, the difference between the first attempt of the book and the second attempt of the book and this attempt is that what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and give really pragmatic ideas and resources and including a digital library and I'll come back to the digital library afterwards that what we're going to make we're, we're going to make available so that we don't just talk the change but we walk the change in other words we don't say stand up in front of people and wax effluent and say you need to change we say here are the specific strategies that are needed to be changed the second book I'm working on is a rewrite of a book called literacy is not enough and literacy is not enough which was a very successful book about three years ago, basically says, even if we were to educate all of our learners to all of the traditional literacies that we've focused on, reading, writing, arithmetic, if we were to focus on them great, to a greater extent than we ever have, that these kids will be literate by the standards of the 20th century, that they're not going to be literate by the standards of the 21st century, and that in fact, literacy is no longer enough and then what we have to do is we have to move beyond literacies to fluencies and fluencies are unconscious mental processes uh, i'll give you an example of this so when we were young we all learned to ride a bicycle and then what happened was at one time in our lives or another we went away from riding a bicycle for an extended period of time 
Now, my question is, let's say you haven't been riding a bicycle, Greg, for 10, 12 years, and you get on a bicycle. How long does it take you to get comfortable riding that bicycle again? And the answer would be? Should be pretty quick. Why? Because it's a fluency, because it is an unconscious mental process. So we don't have to think, we just do. And so in the, what we have to do is there's still a place for content. Don't get me wrong. But what we have to do is we have to use a model called Velcro learning. You know, if you only have one side of a piece of Velcro, nothing sticks. Yeah, so the one side of the piece of Velcro in learning is the content, okay? The other side of the Velcro is the process or what we would call the fluencies. And so what we're doing is we're writing a book and talking about uh, a number of really critical fluencies. They include solution fluency, having a, being able to critical think, problem solve. Uh, collaboration fluency, be able to problem solve in, in, in small and large groups. Information fluency, be able to look at massive amounts of information and be able to distinguish between the good, the bad, and the ugly of information. About communication fluidity, the ability to be able to communicate as effectively in traditional media as we do with digital media. Uh, creativity fluency, and it goes on and on from there. So that's the second book I'm working on. And uh, then the third book is a book called Leadership. And leadership is a result of uh, me having spent over the course of the last, you know, I'm going to say 20 years, about $160, $180 million of other people's money on technology and innovation in schools. And all I can say is I'm very grateful that there's a statute of limitations on stupidity because I've made every stupid mistake you could possibly imagine. And the book called uh, the book, uh, the leadership book, they excuse while the siren goes by here. We've got somebody on the outside here. Oh, they're coming to get me. Ah, ha, ha. Um, leadership is based on an audit tool that I've created. And it basically says, the book basically says, before you spend a penny on technology, on staff development, on anything, what you have to do is you have to know where you are. Yogi Berra, the great educational philosopher and athlete, said, if you don't know where you're going, you're probably going to end up somewhere else. But if you don't know where you are, then how do you figure out where you're going? And so the leadership book basically shows people uh, how in a very, very simple manner, you can take a snapshot of current practice. And that snapshot of current practice is in the area of leadership, in the area of educational practice, in the, in the area of policy and procedure, in the area of assessment, in the area of technology. Uh, there's a number of other areas as well. And, and what it does is it gives you a step-by-step -step tool that gives you a baseline so that what you do is you establish where you are, you do a visioning process to identify where it is you're going, how it is you're going to measure it, what it's going to taste like, what it's going to smell like, what it's going to look like, how you do a gap analysis based on Schmoker's results book called Results, how you work your way back from the future to the present to be able to figure out where you need to start in order to be able to get where you want to get, and then how you can a year down the road come back and take a snapshot and do a gap analysis between where you were and where you are and where you are and where you want to go. Now, that's a 25 words or less description of things, but again, I'll give you uh, some links to some readings if people are interested in any one of those areas, uh, and it, it, it piques their interest and they'd like to know more. And yes, uh, you know, we talk about the brief history of the future of education, the new book coming out, and I see that Steve Wozniak is writing the foreword for you. And I often uh, think about the impact that, that the big technology companies like Apple and Microsoft and Google have 
And I, I often wonder if Steve Jobs were still here, would he become more involved in, say, the Google Classroom project that, that Google has, has given us and some of the, the tech tools for teachers specifically? And I know you can't speak for Steve Jobs or Steve Wozniak or any of the big tech companies, but do you think that all these tech companies, do you think they have an understanding of, of the impact they have in the classroom? I really wish I could say they do, but this goes back to my concern about digital addiction. And I mean, uh, it's not a black and white issue, but um, digital technology is the new tobacco, the way it's designed right now. It's, it's intended to be addictive. And uh, I mean, if you, if you look at um, uh, Steve Jobs as an example, he wouldn't let his kids have iPads. Uh, Bill Gates wouldn't let his kids have cell phones until they were 15 years old. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, and, and, and I don't hold this against them, but I mean, the bottom line for them is the bottom line. And uh, so uh, are there things that Apple are doing that I really like? They're, they're affiliated with Malala and her initiatives. There are things that are happening uh, all over the world that they're, they're trying to do uh, where they're trying to make a difference. But for example, um, one of the things that's being pushed big time right now is coding. Uh, coding is coal mining for the 22nd century. Artificial intelligence is going to replace our need to be able to code. Now, there's uh, something to be said for teaching coding uh, in terms of its ability to help kids become better problem solvers and the like. But, but uh, I, I, I honestly don't know if there's a connection there. I mean, uh, they, may have ha they may have the best of intentions, but I don't necessarily see that it's all positive in terms of the impact it has on learning and learners. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your work with infosavvy21.com is the website, and that is a, a great place to find some of those resources you've been talking about. What do you do uh, with that group, and uh, how can they help educators? Well, uh, thanks for asking me about that. Uh, it's my passion. It's what I was put on this earth to do. It has nothing to do with being business. Um, and so, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I've worked in uh, 82 countries around the world. Uh, I've spoken to hundreds of thousands of people a year. Um, but the area that I'm really focusing on right now is I want to become Johnny Appleseed. And I'll explain what I mean by Johnny Appleseed. Um, educators are driven by the tyranny of the urgent. Educators are driven by the tyranny of everyday life. And, and for most educators these days, it's what's called PhD, piled higher and deeper. And, and they're, they're absolutely overwhelmed with the responsibilities they have. And it's not just as educators, but what they have to be is they have to be therapists and social, social workers and all the rest of it. So what I do and what I've been doing for about the last six years is I've been getting up every single morning, and I do mean every single morning, at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I've been reading for three hours. And I will typically, in a, during a typical day, I will read anywhere between 30 and 100 articles on educational change, on new technologies, on new research on the brain, on new educational strategies. Because most educators, quite simply, don't have the time to do that. And they have a life, and I don't have a life. And, uh, and what I do is I pick, I identify on a daily basis probably the best 10 to 12 articles and I post them to Facebook and I post them to Twitter and I, I write about them and things like that. But what I do is I put them into a software curator called Evernote and Evernote is a, is a, 
uh, a, a tool that, uh, that allows you to take massive amounts of information and organize it in a way so that it's very easy to find anything. So what I've been doing is, over the course of the last, let's say, five or six years, I've put approximately 37,000 articles and resources into that library. And then what I've done is I've broken them down into approximately 290 categories. So if you want to know the absolutely latest research on ITET and education, if you want to know the absolutely latest research on, on reimagining education, if you want the latest research on the brain, and what I've done is I can give you that. I can give people a link to that and share it with them. And so what we've been doing uh, in our books and with our presentations and our handouts and materials like that is at the end of each section, what I do is I say, okay, deep down this is superficial. I've just done a drive-by presentation. I've given you a little bit of information, but if you're interested, you can drill a lot deeper here. And so what I do is I give you a link and that link and then I would then tie you to anywhere between 50 and 100 articles on that particular topic. And what I do is I go in on a monthly basis and I weed. So the, the articles are extremely currently up to date. And so what I'll do is, I'm, I don't know how we're going to arrange this, but I'll give you a link to a sample of some of the stuff that, it, that, that people can have. And here's the best word, part of it. It's the F word, the educational F word which means it's free. And it's there not because I'm trying to make money out of this, but because I want to make a difference. I want to change what happens in schools. If I hadn't had athletics when I was in elementary school and high school and university and after that, I'd either be dead or in jail or I'd be driving a truck today. If I hadn't had athletics, who knows what had happened. And somehow, miraculously, I was able to survive my teachers, my my colleagues, my experiences, and I, it's turned out okay for me. My job is to pass it forward in the very same pe way that other people have passed it forward to me. And again, Ian, I can't thank you enough for your time. And uh, just to give you a closing thought, if you think about we're just now beginning a new school year in the fall of 2018, can you offer a few words of encouragement to those those new principals and new school superintendents that are going back, thinking about how we can make schools better for kids? The, 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 the most important thing that a new principal, that any principal, that any teacher, that any educator can do is listen, okay, and ask questions. Um, it is absolutely astounding what happens if you give your learners the opportunity to express themselves. And, and uh, in fact, I've got some absolutely incredible resources that identify 40 questions you, sh you should be asking that every teacher, every educator needs to know what every student. So the very first thing is, again, listen, take baby steps, to take, take, take the opportunity to reflect. We, too, too, often, uh, too often what we do is we use a model of implementation called ready, fire, aim, or ready, aim, backfire, okay, where we shoot first and ask questions later. We commit a suicide. So the very first thing I ask people to do at the beginning of the school year is, Sit back and watch. Sit back and watch what's going on. Ask questions. Listen. Don't give your opinion. Let other people give their opinions and perspectives of things. 
And that's great advice and well said. And again, I appreciate your time. Uh, I'm, again, I'm a big fan of your work. I've been following you on Twitter for a long time. You can follow Ian on Twitter at iJukes, J-U-K-E-S. You also want to be sure to check out the website uh, that we made reference to, infosavvy21.com. We will put the link to the resources in the show notes. Yes. So, uh, Ian, thanks for your time. And I, I want to give a big thank you to all of our loyal listeners out there listen to the Reimagine Schools podcast. And until next time, always remember, folks, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.